I actually know about um, probably about a dozen folks who would describe what they do in part as tactical physicians. They actually come from a variety of specialties. Uh, so I know folks who are orthopedic surgeons, family practitioners. I actually know a neurosurgeon. I see. Uh, who works with uh, the Las Vegas Police Department. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Marn, a podcast show that attempts to pull back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Marn. Have you ever heard of a tactical physician or someone in tactical medicine? I doubt most of us even know what that really is. Well, in this episode, we're going to talk to someone that is actually doing that. My next guest is a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time, since our college days. He's actually one of my ex-roommates, Dr. Jeremy Ackerman. I've had a bunch of roommates over the years, and I would say he's probably one of my best roommates I've ever had. But he's also a super smart guy, as you will learn from this episode. In fact, there's a whole bunch of things that Jeremy is doing in his career and his life that we just don't have enough time to talk about. So we're just going to focus on one, no, no, two areas And that is him being an emergency medicine physician and a tactical physician. Like myself, Jeremy went to college at Washington University, where he and I were both roommates. He also earned a degree in system science and engineering, as well as biological and engineering sciences. He then went on to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, for his MD, PhD degree. He got his residency training in emergency medicine at Stony Brook University Medical Center in New York. He then went on to Emory University, where he is now an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also an associate professor at the Georgia Institute of Tech at Emory University School of Medicine in the College of Engineering. And most recently, he is a tactical physician and medical director for the Fulton County Police Department. Special Weapons and Tactics SWAT in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a board-certified emergency medicine physician, has several patents, loves to teach, does some great research, has tons of papers, has won numerous teaching awards, uh, receives several grants, and does community outreach programs uh, for the Boy Scouts of America. So let's jump into this and meet my good friend, Jeremy Ackerman. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing? Thanks for joining me today. I'm doing great. Pleasure to be here. That's awesome. Uh, you are obviously in Georgia. I'm in New York, so we're doing this uh, virtually, which is a thing to do nowadays. But um, but I just want to jump right into it, Jeremy. And you're an ER physician, an academic ER physician. What do you do? Um, so it's a great job because... Uh, There are all kinds of things that I get to do. So kind of the academic physician component um, means that I work for a university um, and I get involved in teaching medical students. We have a residency program. So we take doctors who've completed medical school who want to specialize in emergency medicine and we continue their training so that they have the additional skills and knowledge uh, that they need to work as an emergency physician. The other big piece beyond teaching and the actual patient care that uh, I do as an academic physician is I do also get involved in research. So um, is there a amount of time that you spend that's doing clinical versus teaching versus research? Um, So it's a little bit variable and it depends a lot on what kind of funding. Uh, So for example, uh, if I have an idea for a research project, uh, I might find a funding source like a grant that helps me to do the research project. Uh, And then my clinical time would be reduced in order to compensate for that. I do have a very unusual situation in that uh, I teach outside of my primary university. I teach at an engineering school and that actually is funded. So I have a contract to go and teach courses for engineers as well. So that reduces some of my clinical time. Emergency medicine is kind of interesting in the academic world. Because my clinical time is literally dependent on how much money I'm bringing in. My boss knows exactly how much it costs for my time per hour. And if I get a contract or a grant, I go to my boss and I say, look, here's an extra $10,000. 
And he goes, oh, that's going to reduce your clinical schedule by this much. Here's how many fewer clinical shifts you're going to have to work over the next couple months. Got it. So how many... How much clinical time do you spend on average then for the typical month or typical week? Uh, I'm typically in the ER about three shifts per week. Um, Depending on funding, that might be as high as about four and a half-ish. And at times, I've been as low as only two shifts a week. And how long are shifts? Those are eight hours. Okay. At least on the calendar, they're eight hours. Uh, You've got to get into shifts a little bit early. Okay. Uh, because you have to figure out what's actually already happening. You have to take sign out from the doctors that are there, particularly if they're very ill patients that have complex care. Uh, so you need to be there a little bit early. And then that process of sign out often lasts beyond uh, the end of your clinical shift. And so often I'll be there an extra hour or so after the end of the shift. So a shift is really ultimately more like nine, occasionally 10 hours. And those shifts happen any t- old time of the day. You could be doing from 12 to eight in the morning, uh, eight to four o'clock in the morning. Are the shifts very variable? Uh, so they can be. I, and the, the thing about emergency medicine is we're covering the emergency department. Yeah. And if you're hurt, sick, injured, whatever it is, um, you expect there's going to be an ER doctor there. And that means we have to cover it 24-7. So we've got our eight-hour shifts that are scheduled at different times of day. Uh, For us, where I am primarily, we have a shift that starts at 7 in the morning, goes to 3 in the afternoon, one that starts at 3 and goes to 11 o'clock at night. And then we've got an overnight shift from 11 to 3. We also have other shifts that start at times that are intended to line up to when we have the most patients present. Uh, So we have other shifts that start at five o'clock in the evening and go to like one o'clock in the morning to try to get additional coverage. There's some overlap, if you will. Yeah. So there's a little bit of extra overlap and you have extra personnel in place when we're at our peak patient arrivals. Got it. Now, of course, there's a lot of TV shows that have highlighted the ER life and ER doctors. But in your words, what does an ER doctor do? An ER doctor does everything. So when I try to explain what I do as an ER doctor, usually right after somebody goes, well, what are you, what are you actually get like, what are you going to specialize in? I go, no, I'm, I'm board certified in emergency medicine. This is what I am trained to do (laughs) uh, and have to offer a little bit more explanation. One of the things I often tell people is my job and my skill set. I can keep anybody alive for about 10 minutes, Mm. right? So the sickest of the sick patients, I am trained and I do the interventions that keep them going long enough for us to figure out what else we can do who else we need to call in. And, you know, the reality is um, there's lots of things that specialists do that I don't know how to do. Yeah. There are a lot of things that specialists do that I do know how to do and sometimes have to do. But ideally, if I can temporize a little bit, if I can wait a little bit and call the specialist in, that would be better. Sometimes I have to do what the specialist would do because uh, the intervention needs to happen so quickly. Uh, And then there are some things that the specialists, we call them up and they're like, yeah, that's a waste of my time to come in and do that. Why don't you take care of it? (laughs) And so we also have to recognize when it is we actually need the specialists. But going back to that issue of don't you specialize, we, we are a specialty that really prides itself on being able to do a little bit of everything. So we are really the only doctors that would transition between maybe delivering a baby and doing a resuscitation on a newborn. And then the next patient I see might literally be 100 years old, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and in a single shift might take care of orthopedic injuries, um, something surgical, maybe a patient with appendicitis, a stroke patient, a heart attack, right? We take care of all organ systems. And the patients that come to see us have all sorts of medical problems. So a patient who might be taking care of multiple specialists 
if they have a illness or injury on top of whatever's going on, they still go to the ER. And we have to figure out if all of their complicated underlying problems are actually somehow changed what we need to do. So one of the hospitals I used to work in, we would take care of a lot of patients with organ transplants. So very, very complicated patients to take care of. And sometimes, you know, an organ transplant patient will do something like sprain their ankle. Yes. And depending on which organ, that actually might change um, how you manage that. One of my favorite patients of all time was a patient who uh, came into the ER and her chief complaint was a hangnail. Right. A hangnail. A hangnail. Right. And it doesn't seem very dramatic. It's one of those things where you go, wait, why is this patient here? And when I walked into the room, I noticed very quickly that she had these two large suitcases on wheels that were with her. (laughs) Is that normal? That's not normal, particularly (laughs) since they seem to actually be connected to her. And, you know, I, looked very quickly at her medical record and saw that she literally 20 minutes before had been in one of the cardiologist's office. Uh, And it was a cardiologist that takes care of complicated uh, congenital heart defects, very complicated cardiac patients. And she had just been discharged and basically, you know, from the clinic and basically she was fine per that clinic note. Yeah. So I walk in and I say, okay, I'm Dr. Ackerman. How are you? What's going on? And she goes, well, I was leaving my cardiologist's office and my finger got caught on one of the doors as I was going out to the parking deck and it tore my fingernail and it's bleeding. Right. And this is a hand I'm looking at and it is a hangnail. And so I'm kind of looking, not saying anything. She goes, you need to call my cardiologist and you need to call infectious disease and you need to call hematology. And I sort of pause. I'm like, why? And she goes, see these suitcases? That's an external mechanical heart, not an LVAP. Is the battery packs and her external. So that's in a highly specialized medical center. There are only a handful of patients that have actually left hospitals with devices like that. Got it. But that's the kind of stuff that we as ER docs, uh, it's not that I know anything about taking care of that. But we have to recognize that we're in a situation that may be very complicated. And I first called her cardiologist who said, yeah, please call the hematologist and infectious disease. Mm-hmm. You know, from an infectious disease standpoint, you have a point of entry of bacteria. Yeah. And stuff that wouldn't normally grow inside a person can live on those mechanical surfaces right. of a mechanical heart. And with you know, the artificial valves in that mechanical heart, she was on a very weird uh, anticoagulation regimen and she's bleeding. Now, clearly not going to bleed to death from her hangnail, uh, but there was the real question of, do we need to do anything about it? Um, so a great example of a super complicated patient. Thankfully there, I was in a hospital where her cardiologist was and I had all the specialists who know all of those things. But sometimes we we get patients that, um, you know, end up at the wrong hospital. They're just out of town and they come in and they've got all these crazy things. And we have to figure out what to do because we're the doctors there. Jeremy, uh, great story. Um, But as when you're with when you're in this situation, are you often surrounded by residents and medical students because you're at a teaching hospital or not usually? Um, it depends a little bit. So that hospital that I was describing being at, uh, although it's a large hospital in the academic center for emergency medicine, it's not one of our primary teaching sites. So at that hospital out of the 24 hours in the day, we would have one resident for eight hours. So corresponding to one of our shifts, uh, whereas at my hospital, it's now my primary hospital. It's it's a urban safety net hospital, and it really is the primary teaching site for our residents. Uh, and it used to be that as an academic physician, I rarely would see a patient by myself. There almost always was a medical student or resident uh, who would go and see the patient, 
and you know we encourage them for them to get to the patient first as opposed to it, me running and seeing the patient uh, and the residents are trying to keep up with me. Um, what's happened at that hospital since I've been there is our patient volumes have gone up rather substantially uh, and our number of residents hasn't increased. And so now there's a greater expectation and we even have scheduled shifts where we're in a part of the department or we're in a role there where the expectation is we will be seeing patients by ourselves. We might ask a resident to get involved if a procedure needs to be done or something like that where there's a more of a learning opportunity. Uh, but increasingly, uh, kind of the bread and butter, not likely to be very sick patients they're trying to get us scheduled. So we see many more of those patients ourselves. Uh, it helps with efficiency. Uh, when a resident or a medical student goes and sees a patient, they go and see the patient, they come back, they talk to me, I go see the patient, then we have a discussion, right? And we can build in some efficiencies by letting the residents start ordering things. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're not gonna get them out of the door, admitted to the hospital until both me and the resident or sometimes the medical student and the resident is we engage our residents in that teaching process as well. Right. So some patients get seen by the medical student, seen by the resident and seen by me. Um, and that definitely can slow down the overall efficiency of a, a department. With the pandemic going on, and since you are on the front lines in Atlanta with the whole coronavirus, were there times where you regretted going into this specialty because of what you were being faced with? Uh, I wouldn't say regretted going into the specialty. I did have days that I briefly considered standing up and walking out of the hospital and quitting. Particularly early on, there was a kind of a big disconnect. Uh, we already were seeing at the time what was happening in Italy, what was starting to happen in New York City. And so early on in our hospital, there was a bit of hoarding of PPE where everybody knew we were going to need to kind of lock down the PPE and they were not handing it out when it was needed. Mm. And I had a couple times where it was like, okay, do I go and get into a shouting match with the nurse manager or do I just throw up my hands and walk out of here? Cause I can't do what I need to, to keep myself safe. Yeah. And, and one of the, there were a couple of those times that it was more of a, sol a solidarity thing. Like they're willing to give me PPE, but they wouldn't give it to the nurse who was in the room while we were doing the same procedure. And, you know, we're in an ER, particularly early on, we saw a good number of either COVID positive or suspected COVID patients that needed to be intubated. Right. And as, as you're aware, um, intubation, when we put the tube down patients' throats so we can put them on the breathing machines, creates a lot of aerosols. Yeah. And we have to get our faces relatively close to the patient's face. Mm -hmm. It is probably, from a risk to a provider standpoint, uh, probably the most dangerous thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. um, and I did get into two shouting matches where it was like, no, we are not protecting yep. our staff adequately. This is not appropriate. Yep. And people weren't hearing what I had to say. So, you know, what do you do? You say it louder. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked that just because, you know, people are listening and they don't know much about medicine. They're like, wow, these, you're a frontline worker. Is this something I really want to get into? And do people regret or have second thoughts about their career choice because they are now thrust into this pandemic at the front lines? So it also, I have a little bit of a different history with this sort of thing. Um, and there are some of us in emergency medicine. Uh, this is not the first time in my career um, that I have faced a very high risk situation in simply coming to work. So I did my residency on Long Island. Uh, and if you recall back a couple of years ago, we've had a couple of uh, anthrax scares mm -hmm. where people were getting on, uh, envelopes with white powder. Yeah. And some of them actually were tested and actually had anthrax. Uh, and I think we had three or four of those cases were in New York city. Uh, and so I was a trainee at a time where we were on high alert. 
we were looking at every rash extra carefully and going, have you opened any suspicious packages, right? And anthrax historically is a deadly disease. That's why it's a candidate for weaponization, right? So we had that as something. Now, thankfully, I never really got close to that. There weren't any cases near where I was, but it certainly was something that we were on fairly high alert. We were reading the, in some cases, daily updates from the CDC Mm -hmm. about what we know about it, what to do about it, how to protect yourself, what to do about suspected exposures. Um, The other one, which is actually much more like what we're looking at now, the other name for for COVID is uh, basically SARS, right? Well, I was a trainee on Long Island during SARS, and we would get regular uh, reminders during that SARS outbreak that we were to come to work with two weeks of clothing, toiletries, and medications. Uh, because if there was a SARS case or suspected SARS case, the plan was to lock down the hospital and we would not be permitted to leave. And of course, the other part, being in emergency medicine, if we had a SARS case, how would they get into the hospital? Through the ER. And certainly SARS, as much as COVID is bad, SARS was a very different disease, not nearly as easily passed from person to person, but much deadlier. Uh, So that meant that well before COVID came up, uh, I unfortunately every couple of years have had conversations with my family. When I go to work, there may be reasons that I actually could get sick or might not be able to come home as a result of that. And that that's something that, I'm doing for a conscious reason. And my view generally has been that the best way for me to protect my family and keep them from getting sick is for me to keep on doing my job, right? That me being good at what I do, being the ER doc who goes, oh crap, I just got exposed to Ebola, but at least I know that I found a patient with Ebola, so I have to go into quarantine or maybe even need to be treated that's really the better place to be. That's not something that everybody in healthcare, everybody who chooses to go into healthcare uh, necessarily thinks about. Uh, Unfortunately, not everybody who chooses to do emergency medicine necessarily thinks that through all the way. Um, It makes it much easier to go to work every day. uh, Having had that background that with my family, they already knew what my decision was going to be. We just needed to have the discussion about what the risk really was and how likely it was. Um, you know, with COVID, we had to figure out what level of precautions coming home would make everybody feel comfortable. Because I'm going to work and I'm coming home. But, you know, some of my colleagues were like literally stripping naked in their cars before they'd go into their houses sometimes without garages that they were getting their cars into because their family was so worried about them bringing potentially infectious material into the house. Of course. We, we, we decided that I could keep my clothes on, but go directly from the car to the shower, strip, get all the clothes into a bucket that could be handled without, without touching any of the clothes that could just be dropped in the laundry machine. And, and that was acceptable. As we've been learning more about how COVID is actually spread, we've kind of definitely de-escalated. We still have the bucket, but I don't always go and change right away. My scrub top and my mask go into the bucket pretty quickly. I don't necessarily change everything else instantly. Jared, with that in mind, because that sounds, of course, very risky, especially for young people, like, oh my goodness, this is what you're doing. What are the rewarding parts of your job? whether it's pre-COVID or after COVID? You know, there, there are a lot of things and, and some of them are obvious and some of them are kind of a little bit weird, maybe more particularly me. Um, you know, I'm going to start with the obvious things. ER docs actually get paid pretty well, all right? The funny thing about physician salaries is physician salaries generally have been decreasing over, it's roughly 15 to 20 years now, there's been a decrease in average salaries. And before anybody gets too upset, we're still paid plenty, okay? But there is one specialty that has had increases in salary consistently for the past 15 years, and that's emergency medicine. 
Now, going along with that, the number of patients we're expected to see, the actual demands on what we do have definitely been consistently increasing as well. But the pay is good. And, you know, sometimes that's important. That's probably not the best reason to pick doing what you do. Um, but it is one of those things that, you know, it certainly helps. Uh, when it's a really bad day and everything's going wrong, you go, well, at least I'm getting paid, paid pretty good. Um, it's a nice thing to, to be able to fall back on. Um, for me personally, I like the variety of what we see. I go to work and I literally don't know what I'm going to see until I get there. You know, depending on where I'm assigned and time of day, I might be able to predict a little bit. So if I'm assigned to work a shift in the part of our emergency department where we mostly see trauma, I know I'm going to see car crashes. And unfortunately, in Atlanta, I'm probably going to see a couple people who got shot or stabbed or beat up or something like that. And a couple of broken bones, right? I can predict a little bit. And if I'm in our more medical department, I'm probably going to see somebody having a heart attack or a stroke, but I don't know when they're coming. Yeah. I don't know how bad it's going to be. I don't know what sort of interventions that I'm trained to do that I'm going to get to use today. Um, so I love that variety. Um, there are times I don't always like the, the elements of surprise. Um, you know, there, there are times the surprises are not good. Um, <laughs> but having that variety and having enough of surprises that you have to stay on your toes. Um, having the variety means that there's a lot of medical literature that I have to at least be somewhat knowledgeable about. Stay on, stay on top of. Yeah. Um, and probably the best thing about having that diversity being in an academic medical center is I've got all these learners, medical students and residents uh, that I have to try to be smarter than, which is hard because emergency medicine has turned into a very competitive specialty. Um, so the residents that we get, their test scores are higher than mine ever were, right? Their grades, we've got these super smart residents. That and you're we're, smart, Jeremy. Oh my God. <laughs> you, you know, some, some of the residents that I get to work with, it is humbling though. Yeah. Like the stuff that they know that they already understand as a second year resident that, you know, I'm still not necessarily comfortable with. Um, but that does provide a bit of a, a, um, a challenge that you've got to stay current. You've got to know what they're talking about. Um, that way you hopefully have something to teach them and also can help guide them a little bit. Uh, in their management of patients. And again, we have these complex patients spanning multiple medical difficulties, and that, that can be a little bit difficult to work with. So I love that aspect of it's a little bit of everything. The teaching, I chose to be in academic medicine. In academic medicine, in most specialties, you don't get paid as much as being out in the community. Um, the folks in the community will tell, tell you that we don't work as hard. Uh, and that's partially true. We don't see nearly as many patients, uh, but we have that additional challenge of trying to make sure that somebody else who's learning how to do the care that we know how to do doesn't make a critical mistake, um, doesn't do something that insanely increases the cost of care. Um, so we have our own challenges. Uh, but yeah, if you want to make about 20 to 25% more money, don't be in academics. Mm -hmm. You got to love the teaching and the other opportunities that you get there. So one thing that you're doing that we've talked about actually a lot already before we start recording um, is that you're a tactical physician. Now, when you told me about this a few months ago, I had no idea what the heck that was. So could you tell me what a tactical physician is? Okay. So a tactical physician is a physician whose job uh, involves planning for, assisting, and analysis of use of force in a tactical way. Um, so that may happen with, um, with civilian law enforcement. That may happen as part of military operations. And, and what we do as a tactical physician, 
can vary all over the place. So there's a preparation component where you get involved in training, uh, and that may be training medics, that may be training individual soldiers and officers, and that may be me as the tactical physician training myself. Um, there's a lot of force readiness things. So that's making sure that your operators, the officers and soldiers, uh, are healthy enough to actually do the jobs that they're training to do. There's a lot of things involved in mission planning where we figure out what equipment needs to be used, where stuff is staged up, what the plan is if somebody is injured to get them out. Um, so multiple stages of planning. During operations, um, things can vary from being available by phone or by radio to sitting in an ambulance or squad car nearby uh, to actually suiting up and putting on body armor and going in as part of the team. I see. I remember you telling me you would be actually training almost as one of the officers as well. You learn you know, certain law enforcement tactics as you work with uh, one of these SWAT teams. Yeah, as I started getting involved in doing tactical medicine, uh, I realized very quickly that it's hard to train somebody or advise somebody when you don't understand what they're doing. Uh, and so the team that I had started becoming involved in was asking me, hey, you know, when we're, when we're working, when we're doing an operation, can we have you sitting in a squad car nearby? Can you be there just in case something happened? And very quickly in that process, I told them, look, I'll do that. But the deal is that when you have your training days, I need to learn about what you're doing. Like, I don't know how I'm going to advise you what to do if I don't understand at all what it's like to be inside a building with a hostile subject who's armed and maybe shooting at you uh, and all of those kind of crazy scenarios that they might get themselves into. Um, and the best way for me to learn about that, since they would train regularly and they simulate doing many of these things in training, was to go to the training days. And once I said, you're going to teach me, uh, they said, okay. Uh, and it, it developed into a partnership where they've taught me about how they work. And in many ways, I can function as a tactical officer. In most situations, I probably shouldn't be because they're <laughs> going to do it better. And if I'm injured in doing something like that, then um, there isn't another me standing by to help save the situation. But yes, that's that's been an interesting learning curve to kind of understand all that and and try to get to that level of training how many tactical physicians are there in the country is this a big or a small group of people um it is probably bigger than you would imagine uh but it's not a huge group uh it is large enough that the american college of emergency physicians actually has a uh, a subgroup within them that is specifically for tactical physicians. Okay. Um, I don't know the membership of that group. It, it, it's a small enough group that as I started getting involved in doing this, um, most of the people I'd say, oh yeah, I'm doing tactical stuff. They'd say, oh, that's really weird to have a physician doing that. And I go, I didn't even invent this. Like other people do this. I'm just kind of getting in on this game. Um, Many, many people were surprised. Uh, and every once in a while, when I'd have one of those conversations, somebody would go, oh, yeah, uh, do you know my friend Steve? He's So I actually now know, without getting into the, the American College of Emergencies uh, uh, physicians section specifically on it, um, I actually know about um, probably about a dozen folks who would describe what they do in part as tactical physicians. They actually come from a variety of specialties. Uh, so I know folks who are orthopedic surgeons, family practitioners. I actually know a neurosurgeon. I see. Uh, who works with uh, the Las Vegas Police Department. So you don't need to be an a ER doctor to get into this it's a very small niche group of tactical physicians. Absolutely not with a couple caveats. So the nice thing about emergency medicine is some of what tactical physicians do 
is definitely part of the core of what we do in emergency medicine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that quick resuscitation, uh, the the small number of procedures that in the field are actually helpful are part of what we already do in the emergency department. Um, so we already are conversant in the procedures. It's learning how to do them in a different setting. Emergency medicine also is more likely to get involved in tactical medicine because a subspecialty of emergency medicine is EMS, emergency medical systems. Mm-hmm. And that part about preparing and training tactical operators is very similar to preparing and training paramedics and EMTs who are out you know, as part of ambulance crews. Uh, and there's a lot of management issues and writing protocols and things like that, uh, which is kind of the domain of EMS as a subspecialty of emergency medicine. So a lot of ER docs get involved in tactical medicine because SWAT teams that have their own paramedics will need to have a physician, a medical director that supervises the care that they deliver. Um, and so that becomes another route that ER docs tend to get involved in tactical medicine. Uh, and finally, the other big route that gets uh, physicians involved, and many of the physicians that I know who are tactical physicians already have a background, usually military, occasionally law enforcement, mm. where they okay. already know something about what the teams that they're working with do. Um, so unlike me, they don't necessarily need the training of how to be a tactical operator to understand it. They already know that part. They know the medicine. They just need to refine the what do you do in the field component of it. Um, and so many, many of the tactical physicians that I know are, um, you know, had been army rangers or had other roles like that where they had really quite advanced uh, tactical training, and in many cases, experience. They're very comfortable with the tactical part and have to do some adjustment over time of like, how do I do the medical stuff? Yeah, yeah. Jeremy, just shifting gears here. Were you always thinking about being a physician when you were young, younger? Absolutely not. Um, yeah, in high school, I, and part of this, you know, funny things happen uh, as you go through growing up. And going through school, I'm going to blame my high school biology teacher. <laughs> so I had high school biology and I absolutely hated it. Really? Uh, it, it, yeah. It felt like all we were doing was memorizing stuff, you know, genus and species yeah. and stupid stuff like that. Um, we got into a little bit of microbiology, cell biology, uh, but rather than actually really learning much about how cells actually worked, we were just memorizing names of, of cell parts. Just memorizing nomenclature. Yeah. And in, so there was very little that to me seemed to be actually useful because we were just learning about the language of biology. Yeah. And it seemed super boring and I hated it and I didn't like the teacher either. Um, and, you know, the reality is a lot of us end up liking things that we have a teacher or a mentor yeah. that we like because yeah. we want to be like them. And I definitely didn't want to be like her in any way, shape, or form. Um, and what I did get excited about was uh, engineering. Um, I liked at the time, and I still do, I like building stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and probably more importantly, I like solving problems, which gets back a little bit to what I do as a physician. Right? If you think of, there's a patient here, something hurts, they have a problem, and my job is to figure it out and solve them. Right. Um, and I found that using math and engineering and computer science, um, I got to solve really neat problems. And it was fun, and I didn't have to memorize a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so pretty much I finished college, and I was like, I'm never doing anything else biology-like. I would never want to go to medical school. Um, and I actually had a lot of people that suggested, oh, you should do medicine. You should do medicine. Uh, I, I have a medical condition. I have diabetes and it's something that, you know, I've spent a lot of time with doctors, thankfully very little time in hospitals because of it. Um, and 
often people would hear about the diabetes and say, oh, you're, you're, you're super smart and you have diabetes. So of course you want to be an endocrinologist so that you can take yeah. care of diabetes better. Right. And, you know, my response always was, well, first of all, I hate biology and by extension, I hate medicine. And I spend enough time worrying about diabetes, trying to take care of myself. Why the heck would I ever, ever want to do that to myself? Um, so that was kind of how I started out uh, heading into college. And in college, um, I had a lot of advanced standing. I'd taken courses at a community college. I'd done a whole bunch of AP tests. So I basically started college credit-wise as a sophomore, which gave me incredible flexibility uh, to take extra courses just because. And uh, where I went to college, actually where we went to college, uh, there were a lot of pre-meds. Do you think so? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, in the incoming freshman class, we were around 30% pre-med. Yeah, it's now, tons. Now, it and they were all taking biology too. Right. And But yeah, during my first and second year in college, there were all these people around who were like, oh, pre-med is awesome. Biology is awesome. And they're taking all these biology classes. And at one point I was like, you know, that's kind of weird. I mean, there are all these people who think biology is awesome. I think it sucks. Maybe I missed out on something. <laughs> so I decided that I was just going to take a biology class just to figure out if there was something that I missed in high school. And I have a habit of not taking on easy challenges. So, you know, rather than taking um, my, my, bot, my, my wife actually took in college a great biology class, a botany class, where Basically, each day they had a fruit and they dissected the fruit and talked about how the fruit grew, right? And they learned a lot about trees and fruits and so, and then they ate the fruit, right? Yeah. R rather than taking a <laughs> class like that, that's great for filling, you know, requirements to graduate. I'm like, no, if, if I'm going to figure out if biology is, is interesting or not, I'm going to take like, what's, what's the, what's the best thing to take? And the conclusion was I should take the pre-med intro to biology class you know I, I sat there for the semester and then the second semester and i'm like this is kind of cool like there's a little bit more to it i don't know how i ended up getting a good grade in that the first semester because i really wasn't taking it very seriously like i'd go to class i'd go to the study section and then i take the test and i wouldn't really study for it it was just like yeah let's get through this and so I had that as a little bit of a backdrop. Um, I realized that there was this other program within the School of Engineering where you could get a minor or actually a second bachelor's degree in biology um, from the engineering school. Um, and so I started taking additional biology classes, more advanced biology classes. Um, and partway through college, I, I realized I'd pretty much finished my engineering degree. And I actually had started working on a master's degree in engineering. I had pretty good scholarships. Uh, and I decided that if I didn't finish my undergraduate degree, I could actually use my undergraduate scholarships to do a master's degree. Wow. Yeah. And that way I didn't have to work as a graduate teaching assistant. Um, so I was taking starting my sophomore year, but junior and senior year, I was actually taking a good number of graduate courses, um, but with a total number of courses, more like an undergraduate. So large number of courses, but had these graduate courses. And at some point, I think it was in my junior year, I realized that as much as I was good at what I was doing the master's degree in, I didn't actually yeah. like it. Yeah, you're just getting another degree, but and, not really thinking about, is this really interesting to yeah. you? And I was looking at what the job market was like and what kind of jobs. And I just wasn't interested in the jobs that people who had done an advanced degree within that area of engineering were getting. And, and that meant, you know, I, I started doing a little bit of, of, of self-reflection. And I realized, wait, all this biology stuff has actually been kind of interesting. And uh, I had the good fortune of having um, a, a mentor uh, and I've made a habit through my career of having multiple mentors uh, who was very senior in this department. And I went into his office to tell him, I'm not doing this master's degree. I got to do something different. 
And um, I went into his office. It was kind of very dimly lit. And he had a, a very deep, uh, actually Hungarian accent, which I can't imitate. He also smoked a pipe. And the campus was recently tobacco-free. But there was an exemption for his office. So he had this exhaust fan. Oh, my God. You remember this? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, you know, it, it was sort of a key moment in my life. And it was an important realization happened here. Right. So I'm in this dark, smoky room with this guy with this deep accent. And he goes, you know, there are two ways in life you can always make money. Right. This has my attention. You can kill people or you can cure people. Okay. And then he asked me if I would be willing to help him write a white paper for a company that he was doing some consulting for that had been making anti-tank missile systems. Uh, They're realizing that they don't really have a business model that works uh, outside of the Cold War. Uh, And so they're looking at other things they can use their technology for. And they have this idea that they could use um, their anti-tank missile technology somehow in medicine. And the idea was that they would use uh, their, their, their technology that would find and identify camouflage tanks and use it to read pap smears. Um, so, you know, the, these are, are tests that women get done to screen for cervical cancer that growing up, um, it was a big deal. There were women that were dying. And, you know, now we've got a vaccine mm. for, for the virus that causes most of cervical cancer. Uh, and it turns out in high school, I had a friend whose mom uh, actually died of cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, her cancer had been missed for more than a decade because her pap smears had either not been read or had been misread. Um, so this was a problem that was a little bit close to my heart, right? This actually was a medical issue that impacted somebody I actually knew, um, where it appeared the technology actually would work to address the problem. And so I had that kind of aha moment that like, okay, I know how to do engineering, but there are other directions that I can go with doing engineering. And so I pretty rapidly transitioned from doing a master's degree in kind of stuff to do missile guidance systems to thinking about how do I get involved in using engineering to solve medical problems. Um, And in that transition, uh, a friend of my dad's actually said, well, you know, there's this thing called an MD PhD program. You could like do a PhD Mm -hmm. in biomedical engineering and go to medical school because otherwise as an engineer, you're going to be dependent on having clinicians to work with and find his collaborators. Uh, but you could just be both yourself. I'm like, Oh, that's kind of a neat idea. Um, so initially I started looking at medical school with the idea of, I only want to go to medical school if I can do both a PhD and the MD. Um, my parents, when I, I told them this brilliant plan, um, were not enthusiastic. Uh, my dad in particular, who had had a lot of pressure from his parents that he should go to medical school, which he didn't end up doing, uh, was like, no, you don't really want to go to medical school unless you actually really want to go to medical school. You know, you got to do something to make sure it's right for you. Um, So that winter break, and I think this was my junior year, uh, I volunteered in an emergency department. And, you know, our winter break was about a month long. the hospital that I was volunteering at, volunteers were only supposed to work like three hours at a time. I'd go and I had nothing else to do really for that month. I mean, other than I guess hang out with my parents, you know, it didn't seem that appealing. Um, and very quickly as the staff in this ER kind of got to know me and got a little bit more comfortable about me, uh, they started showing me stuff, you know, would ask me to help out with things that were well beyond what a volunteer probably ought to be doing. Uh, And I was regularly there for eight or more hours at a time. Um, So an amazing volunteer experience, but I came away from it um, having a little bit better understanding that I actually liked that working directly with patients things, which was definitely a bit of a surprise. I I don't usually think of myself as a people person. Um, You're a good roommate. (laughs) 
Well, you know, <laughs> so, sometimes things work out, but you know, again, it, I, I'm not usually the person who randomly walks up to people and starts talking. Um, yeah. so I, I was really sort of surprised to discover that in that setting, um, you know, I, I could bond with people a little bit. Part of what volunteers do is get people settled down, calm down things that the doctors and nurses would like to be doing, but don't always have time to be doing. Um, and so kind of, that was a wake up moment of wait, I actually like, like biology was a bit of a surprise. Uh, not that it's my favorite thing ever, but, um, you know, certainly there was, was something of interest there, but this working directly with patients, uh, ended up being much more appealing than I would have thought. Um, and so uh, that led me to change from, okay, I want to do MD-PhD to, no, I'm going to medical school one way or another, and hopefully I can do the, the PhD. Were you, um, is that kind of why you also got into ER? Because that's where you first volunteered? Um, it's likely part of it. Um, you know, my, my pathway through, through education, um, I actually got a rejection the medical school i went to i got a rejection letter uh but i was asked to interview for the md phd program which meant that my application now with an interview attached got put back into the pile of applications they were considering which led me to be waitlisted and then ultimately accepted um so i have a rejection a waitlist and acceptance all from the same year uh, at the university, For the same school, yeah, same school, University of North Carolina. But uh, again, they had an MD PhD program that I was interested in. I'd actually spent a summer during college. Uh, that was a whole nother story, but uh, a summer during college at UNC, um, and I knew about a research there who I was really interested in working with. Um, and so when I knew I could go there for medical school, and I was happy about going there for medical school, I called up the director of the MD-PhD program, and I basically said, you didn't take me for medical school, uh, for, for the MD-PhD program, I should say, but I got into medical school. So if I'm coming anyway, can you help me do a PhD too? And they basically said, look, we can't give you any of the funding that normally goes along with an MD-PhD program, covering your tuition and stipends. But if you think you really want to do it, We'll tell everybody you're in the program. Just don't expect us to pay your tuition. Um, so I was administratively part of the program, uh, which was great because I got to meet all of the folks who were in the program, kind of got that that core group, got the administrative support so that once I convinced uh, actually computer scientists to take me on as a graduate student, um, there's a lot of paperwork that has to happen for you to take a leave of absence from a medical school. Uh, and that was all stuff that the MD-PhD program uh, took on. Um, yeah, so, you know, six years later, so I do two years of medical school, four years of a PhD, then come back to medical school as a third-year medical student. Uh, my dissertation had to do with general surgery. Uh, I worked on being able to use augmented reality to assist laparoscopic surgery. Okay. Right, which this was back... Video games for... For surgery, yeah, and, and the part that that you have to remember is now like you can play like Pokemon Go and stuff like that, where you do augmented reality on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. At the time, you needed a multi-million-dollar supercomputer to be able to do mm -hmm. things like that. So this was back when augmented reality was hard. Uh, this was back when people thought laparoscopic surgery was hard as well. Uh, so it was a kind of interesting niche. I spent a lot of time working with surgeons. So I went back to my third year of medical school certain that I wanted to be a general surgeon uh, and pretty certain because one of my mentors had been a trauma surgeon. I'm sorry, that's my, my dog. <laughs> yeah, so I spent a good bit of time with uh, a trauma surgeon. So I thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon, right? My, my clinical mentors were largely trauma surgeons. So what else would I do but trauma surgery? Um, and so that's how I kind of went back to my third year uh, of med school. Um, and so I actually started filling out residency applications to do a general surgery residency. Um, 
And it was about three weeks before the applications had to be sent out that one of my mentors who uh, is a general surgeon, uh, he was finishing off his laparoscopic surgery fellowship at UNC, took me aside and said, why are you doing general surgery? I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, don't get me wrong. I think you'd be great as, as a surgeon. He goes, but you know, this stuff with engineering that you do, all of that, you're not going to be able to do that for another five, six years if you become a surgeon, right? You're going to spend so much time focusing on being a surgeon that you're not going to be able to do that. And he goes, and more importantly, you're good at that other stuff. You know, basically, as a second-year medical student, you designed a medical device that I, as a surgeon, think I want to use. You didn't do that as a surgeon. You did that because you understand the engineering. You understand medicine and what surgeons do, not that you know how to do it. So if that's what you want to do, maybe it's not the right thing. He goes, and the other thing is you'll go through a surgery residency and you'll get to the end of it and either you will love surgery, that is you'll want to be a surgeon and operate all the time, or you'll be fed up with surgery and your first opportunity to get out into industry or do something else, you'll take it. And either way, that will be a waste of the six years that you're going to spend becoming a surgeon. He goes, my advice, if there's something else you like, you should look at it. And he specifically mentioned emergency medicine. And part of the point was what I mentioned that I love about emergency medicine. We do a little bit of everything. It's almost like being a medical student for the whole rest of your life, right? (laughs) You're you're on you're on gynecology. Next month you're on psychiatry. Next month you're doing peds, right? Except for us, it's this patient is a pediatric patient. This patient has a dermatologic problem, um, and so his point that being in a field where you see a little bit of everything, you continue to have an exposure to a wide diversity of medical problems. Mm. Not that to be work with engineers or be an engineer designing a solution or problem, you actually have to be an expert on the problem. You have to know enough about it that you can find the experts who really know something and help kind of bridge the gap between the engineering world uh, and and the medical world. Um, Now, the other part of this is when I came home and proudly announced to my wife, you know, how I was gonna do surgery, no, no, I'm switching up. I'm doing emergency medicine. Uh, and this is while I'm doing my only month as a medical student. I just did one month of emergency medicine. I come home and say, hey, I'm, I, I want to do emergency medicine. And she's like, of course you are. I mean, like, why were you even thinking about the surgery stuff? Uh, so it was no <laughs> surprise to her. And part of what she reminded me is how much fun I had as a volunteer in the emergency department. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I tell medical students is part of what I realized as a medical student is the times I was happiest as a medical student. No question, I loved being in the OR, right? I loved getting my hands, even standing there, just holding a retractor and fixing someone, right? Yeah. Uh, I love that solving problems and I, that, that there's something about actually fixing someone or tangible. Yeah. It's tangible. You know what you did at the end of the day was awesome. But what I didn't like with surgical specialties was all of that, like seeing them in clinic before and after, (laughs) and even seeing them, you know, post-op day three. And in in general surgery, post-op day three for a lot of abdominal surgery, you're literally waiting for the person to be able to eat, drink, and fart, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and you, you go on your round and like, hi, sir, how are you doing? Let's look at the incision. So have you passed gas yet? Well, keep on trying, right? Keep on trying. <laughs> and and it, it, to me, the pre-op and post-op and the long-term follow-up um, was just absolutely uninteresting. Mm. Um, the part that I loved about being a medical student on inpatient services, other than going to the operating room, is when our pagers would go off that there was a new patient in the ER. And the reason was, is I got to meet a new patient that had a new problem that we would figure out how we were going to fix. And that's the same whether you're on a medicine team or a surgical specialty, 
when the pager comes from the ER, the ER has a patient that either they don't know how to fix, they don't know what to do about the patient, or they do know that something needs to be done and they're not the right ones to do it. And as a medical student where you get to explore being on a lot of different teams, the pager going off to see that new patient in the ER was the best thing ever. Now, I will also say, and you probably remember this from, from you know, being a medical student and, and, and being a resident, most people on most teams, when you got that page to the ER, most people are groaning. Yeah. Right? Because it's a whole bunch of work you have to do. You got to go see, oh, I got to go see a new patient. They're going to have new problems. I'm going to have to figure out all their problems. As opposed to the people who are already admitted to the hospital that we've got a plan. We know what right. we're doing. We're following the labs. We're doing the things. Um, so there's a little bit of a disconnect and there's a personality issue around emergency medicine. Many of us who do emergency medicine and love emergency medicine had similar experiences Um and, and we often commiserate like, yeah, it was great the first day, new patient on any service, but by day, depending on our attention spans, by day two to four, somewhere in there, it was old business and we're just bored out of our minds. <laughs> um, so in retrospect, there were a lot of indicators that emergency medicine was going to be the right place to go. Um, but it, it took me a while longer than everybody else who knew me to realized that 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 was that was going to be my destination jeremy i want to ask how can listeners reach out to you if they have any uh questions or want to reach out to you and and learn more about you um you know you can try sending me an email um that's probably the best way um and uh you know emory has a little mini bio you can find my email address there i guess you can probably post it along with the podcast um the only thing that, that I will tell you is the university does have pretty good spam filters. Um, so if you don't hear, and I get so many emails that uh, if it's not from somebody that I recognize, um, I may not answer it right away. So what I tell many students that I work with, look, if you really want to get in touch with me, send me an email, give it about five days, send me another email. If I see your name enough times, even if I'm purposefully ignoring you, I will eventually get curious enough to respond or alternatively, I will simply see it. Um, so that's probably the best way uh, is just by email um, since I'm not really big into social media. Yeah. Okay. Uh, link LinkedIn is probably the other good one. Uh, if you can find me there, it's, uh, there aren't very many Jeremy Ackermans that come up, uh, although I don't check that as as frequently. But many of the uh, the requests for info and questions on LinkedIn, I'm more likely to read simply because there are fewer of them. There's a final thing I like to do. This segment called a lightning round. Uh oh. All right, quick questions. Not too much. Uh, you know, mostly one word answers or yes no. You ready? Yep. All right. Scale of one to ten, how good of a driver are you? Nine. How many hours of sleep do you need? Five. Godfather or Star Wars? Star Wars. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? What the heck? (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's your ideal outside temperature? Uh, 60. Do you believe in Santa Claus or did you ever believe in Santa Claus? Absolutely never. Where do you want to go more than any other place in the world? Uh, this is going to make you happy. I want to go to Hawaii. You haven't been? I have not been to Hawaii. Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, let me know when you're going to go. We're going to get through COVID. I mean, it's... <laughs> That's true. And you don't want to go to Hawaii right now. The number's no, not good No, I don't. There. I don't. Who is the biggest inspiration in your life? Wow. That, that's that's a hard one. Shall, I would say probably um, my grandfather. That, that my son is named for. Can you say something about yourself that most people at work would not know about you? Mm, I am very transparent. Uh, <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, I, I think almost all of my secrets at this point have come out. Um, oh, I know how to knit. Wow. All right. That uh, that stands out. Yeah. I that, that has come up, but most people at work don't know that. I, I taught myself how to knit so I wouldn't fall asleep in medical school. 
That's an interesting way. You didn't do use a coffee. Um, and finally, Jer, what's something you could eat straight for a week? Mm. There probably are things I have eaten straight for a week. Um, I'm going to go with, with shrimp. Shrimp? Yeah. Seven days straight? Yeah. And lobster, lobster would wow. be even better, but less practical. And, and plus, it's a lot more work to, to eat a lobster. Good thing you don't have gout. <laughs> Yet. I mean, one of these days, it might happen. All right, Jeremy. Dude, thanks a lot for joining me on this session. I appreciate it. It was great fun. All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.